Hey, how are you doing today? I'm awesome. How are you doing? Good. Welcome to Burn the Ship, Lauren Fernandez. Yeah. Yes, with what company? Full Course Restaurant Investment and Development. We're going to start at A. Okay. How did you get into the business? That is a great question. I was a an attorney and I was the You still are an attorney. Though, I right? still am. You can't ever actually shake that. <laughs> you know that. Um I am a reformed attorney, I suppose. There you go. Yes. Um I was actually working for a pharmaceutical company and I'd done a lot of product development and licensing in my career. I got a call one day from one of my MBA friends who was at Focus Brands working in licensing and said, You really need to come meet our CEO. And I did. We had coffee. Cool. Turned into a series of coffees, which turned into a job offer to go run the legal department at Focus Brands. And that is how I ended up in restaurants. What's Focus Brands? Focus Brands is the parent company of several franchised restaurants here in Atlanta. Moe's Southwest Grill, Cinnabon, Carvel Ice Cream, McAllister's, Schlotzky's, Annie Ann's Pretzels. I might have missed one in there. Yeah. (laughs) Lots of them. Yeah. So I was there for a little over three years. Uh, When I left, I started a consulting practice helping other restaurant companies add additional revenue to their businesses, Um, usually doing franchise systems or helping them set up a product development program. Sure. And in the process, also became a restaurant developer myself. So a partner and I started Origin Development Group, and we bought the rights to develop Chicken Salad Chick in the Atlanta, Augusta, and Athens markets. And overnight, I became a restaurant operator. Awesome. So <laughs> we, um, Which restaurant? Chicken Salad Chick. Oh, I love the, that place. My wife loves Chicken Salad yes, Chick. Yes, we love it too. We're huge fans of the brand. I really mm. love the idea of investing and helping grow a brand that was started by a female entrepreneur, Stacey Brown. Um, still, I'm a huge fan of the concept. We ended up selling our restaurants, all 11 of them, and three that we had under development mm-hmm. at the end of December 18. During COVID, uh, the uh, there's a Kennesaw chick, chicken salad chick. Yeah, yeah, and, that um, used to be ours. Oh, did it? <laughs> yeah. And, and during COVID, they did something awesome. They would go to this Publix right here. Mm-hmm. And you could pre-make it and you could go pick it up there. Yeah. Like in the parking lot. It was awesome. I have a lot of friends in the system still. Those are now company stores, if I'm not mistaken. But um, just got really creative, um, Mm -hmm. not just within Chicken Salad Chick, but in all of the restaurants. We're really getting used to and comfortable with Mm -hmm. off-premise sales, which is something that I have always been a huge fan of because Mm. it adds incremental revenue to restaurants, even when you're not in a pandemic, right? So I'm very happy to see that that's a new trick that a lot of restaurant owners have learned and really paid attention to. It's not just catering. It's literally selling outside the four walls of the restaurant. For sure. Mm-hmm. So what did you learn at Focus Brands? Is it fo- It's Focus Brands, yeah. right? Yeah. What, to, to go, hey, you know what? I'm going to take what I've learned here and I'm going to go into consulting. So what I really loved about my time at Focus was in addition to being counsel to the company, the entire executive team, super talented folks. And I really got to learn from some of the best in the industry and see the business side. Mm. And I appreciated very much that not just as counsel was also looked at and respected for business opinion. One of the things that I saw when I was at Focus was how much value licensed product can add to a restaurant brand mm. for the owners 
and for the franchisees. And I still very firmly believe in that. Um, it's something we do for our clients even today. Sure. But one of the things I also saw and really built a lot of faith in was the franchise system and just franchising in general. Mm-hmm. And watching and doing all of these deals all over the world for our multi-unit franchisees and seeing how successful they were really inspired me to become a franchisee as well. So it's been an interesting ride being both on the franchisor side Mm -hmm. and migrating over to operations and running restaurants as a franchisee. And I think that really well informed everywhere we are and how we got to where we are today with full force. So when 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 we you switch over and you go, hey, I'm looking for for young entrepreneurs that own a one location restaurant, a two location location mm-hmm. restaurant. What? How do you get those clients? And then what is the first thing you say to them? No, that's fantastic question. So Full Course, my restaurant development and investment mm-hmm. firm, primarily focuses on emerging restaurant brands where there's one, two, three, maybe even up to five units. And mm-hmm. so these brands are really in their infancy. And one of the things I think really resonates with our clients is obviously we've walked the walk. Everyone on my team has operated restaurants before, um, and several of us have owned restaurants before. Mm -hmm. So we're not just industry executives with expertise. Yeah, you've been in the kitchen. We've walked it. We know know what we're doing. So I think that's first and foremost is to really convey that the way that we built Full Course was for operators Mm -hmm. by operators. And- we do that in every every aspect of our business is built for our clients mm-hmm. from the ground up. When we're talking to them initially, we commiserate over how exhausting it is to run a restaurant. That's right. And I share with them very humbly that my story, I, I was exhausted. When we mm-hmm. sold our restaurants, I took a year. I took a, a full year of sabbatical. I was I turned 40. And I needed that not only to recharge, but to redirect my focus and think about what I wanted to do next. And I think sharing that story about how doing not only the operations of mm-hmm. 11 units, but, you know... Even and were all those chicken salad chicks? They were. Okay. They were. But even with the help and support of a great team on ops, managing that entire experience and also developing new units at a rate of two or three a year was exhausting. Mm. And so even when you have the resources, have the education, have the team behind you, doing both is impossibly hard Mm -hmm. and not really well advised, if you ask me. So we share with them that our approach is to leave them in control of the operations, to leave them in majority ownership and to partner with them to not only come up with a development plan that meets their goals, Mm -hmm. but to fully fund it and to manage that to execution. So you're basically giving somebody an executive team. Yeah. That's what you're doing. Yeah, we really are. So our team is, if you think about it this way, we have half of the team devoted to supporting the restaurant and its human capital growth and really emerging our owners as leaders of their brands. Mm -hmm. And that's from everything from finance to marketing to human resources Um, operations support, the whole kit. The other half of the team is almost exclusively focused on development, right? That's the architects, the contractors, the designers, the decorators, um, the real estate team. 
And that really allows us to zero in and get the job done right in mm -hmm. both of those categories, but collectively as a team as well. How many owner operators are you working with right now? Seven. Um, so we have three that are signed mm -hmm. and we've got another pretty robust pipeline that's already got us thinking that we need to start raising our second fund. There you go. Um, and this is something that just to be clear, you know, the fund behind this is not a one and done. We have plans to do more than one capital raise, but we do them in increments so that it matches the pace of our client's development. I don't want to be sitting on capital for three years. Sure. I want to have the fund raised and we know how to deploy it over the next year. It needs to be out there. So it's making exactly. money. Exactly. Yeah. we got to make it, put it to work, so to speak. So the pipeline's looking really strong. Mm -hmm. We're really, really excited. It's got a very good representation, I think, of different categories or mm -hmm. types of brands. And, you know, without a specific agenda, I don't think it's a surprise that we've got a lot of female and minority brands out there. Um, I, I'm really proud of that. I think that that's something we're doing to help impact the industry and create a little bit more diversity and bring some different flavors to the table. Right? Sure. I'm excited about Quite that. Quite literally, right? Literally. <laughs> So are you? Are we talking about hot dog stands, fine dining, or everything in between? It is literally everything in between. That's the cool. way I describe it is, you know, edge of drive-through all the way up to a white tablecloth. Mm. And I think we have the benefit of the pandemic for this is that what defines fast casual or casual dining now has an even broader spectrum mm -hmm. because those edges of of it, especially on fine dining, got really crunched in the pandemic. So people mm -hmm. kind of migrated over towards casual. And generally speaking, the that category in the industry has been fairly resistant to things like depressive, you know, depressions of the economy, um, recession. 2001, 2008, 2012. Saw it all, 2006 <laughs> through nine. Yeah. yeah, all of those things. So they continue to have decent year-over-year -year growth as a category, mm -hmm. even when on the whole restaurants were not experiencing mm -hmm. that. So, and we're, we like it for that reason. I think it also gives you a lot of room for play. So it's a little harder to take fine dining out as catering or, sure. or off-premise, but mm -hmm. there's a lot more room for play for product development, for off-premise, for non-traditional development to airports and stadiums when you're in that kind of casual space. Well, I also think when, you, when you're when you being a merchant service uh, you know, company, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of these people weren't set up already for a pandemic and, mm -mm. and they, they had to scramble and a lot of them lost money and went out of business because they weren't. So when you use somebody like you, you're ready for that. Yeah. And so you've been there. It's so interesting because this has been a diversified revenue model for restaurants has been my approach since I left Focus. That's right. what I've done for my clients for years. And so interestingly, the pandemic has sort of proven out that model, mm -hmm. right? That you can't just rely on the four walls of the restaurant to generate the income of the business. You really do need to think about multiple channels, not only to have diversified sales revenue, but also to have the brand awareness out there as you're growing the brand. What is, um, when, when you when you consult with these, these entrepreneurs at first, what would you say is a common problem that, that that they run into that what what is their weak point yeah. so because they know how to cook a burger oh yeah they know they, know how, to cook well, they know how to do everything yeah. in the restaurant and i think mm -hmm. that's exactly the point so the mm -hmm. number one is exhaustion and fatigue <laughs> that's right number one 70 80 hours a week right? number two is you have to get them out of position so mm -hmm. if we have an operator owner who i will say is in position literally the restaurant cannot run if they are on if not if they're not on the line or if they're not out in front we need to figure out how to fix that because right. 
we need them focused on the business growth and focused on taking off some of those hats, which is point number three. A lot of these phenomenal owner operators are not scalable because they're one mm-hmm. person and they're wearing 15 hats. Sure. And so it's kind of like peeling back layers of the sure. onion, right? They might cry a little bit while we're doing it, mm-hmm. but it's going to feel better at the end. That's so right. We take one hat at a time. We go for the things that are really easy to do that have immediate impact. Mm -hmm. We document, we systematize, and we create processes and ongoing training within the business so that it can be replicated Mm -hmm. outside of one person and in multiple locations. And that's true across every aspect of the business, whether it's operations or finance or marketing, even down to how you do the inventory every week. I feel like the biggest struggle right now in the, for, for those, those folks in, you know, July, 2021 would be hiring people. It is so true. You know, like Mm -hmm. not only is it costly to recruit, but then the pool of people you're recruiting from. So how do, how do you, how are you talking to those people about that? So wonderful point. And this is a point of crisis for many of our clients sure. right now because we'll stabilize the restaurant, we'll put the owner on a project, and then three days later, two people walk out the door and decide they want to start their own circus or you know go to another restaurant or brand couch. or just not work anymore yeah, or right. just leave the industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, it happens. All four of those things have happened mm-hmm. in the last two weeks to one of our <laughs> clients. So literally, um, I I think that there's a number of things I want to say here. First is this is an industry-wide issue that existed before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. 73% of restaurants reported being understaffed before COVID. I believe it. Okay. Believe it. So we had an issue as an industry with sustainable career paths with sustainable wages, mm-hmm. um, with all of these things, with health care, with benefits, you name it, child care. There was already a black eye. This just showed it even more. I right? think that this put a flashlight on it. <laughs> and I want to say that, you know, love the industry and we have an opportunity to rebuild it right. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that we can take away from this is if you have a diversified revenue platform, if there are multiple channels of revenue for the business, and let's just say you're adding 10 to 12% to your sales mm-hmm. for the year in Which aggregate. Which is huge. That is humongous. And let's just say you're saving an extra 3 to 4%, including a point if they use you for merchant services, right? I'm just saying that- She plugged it, not me. I did. <laughs> um, but I'm making the point here that that incremental revenue makes funding careers- for your employees and all of the benefits that they really truly want, paid yeah. vacation, healthcare, et cetera, mm. all possible. Mm-hmm. And that is really what we try to engineer for our clients. Yeah. It's not about more money in the bank. It's about having the right kind of money to build the business from the bottom up right yeah. the first time. That even includes having an employee pool. And making sure that some of the sales profit from the business, some of the profit gets pulled off to the side for an employee bonus pool as an incentive. Mm. It's something that we feel very strongly about and so much so that we do it at full course for our own employees. Um, So, yes, just to to wrap that up, yes, hiring is an issue. We are putting enormous resources behind that to support our Mm. clients right now, and it's just the right thing to do. Um, we've given several seminars and and tips and tricks, et cetera, on what to do. I do not think we're out of this yet. I think mm-hmm. it's actually gotten a little bit worse the last three weeks. Um, as we sit here today, you know, kind of headed into the middle of July. I think that 
we're not going to get better sure. until the fall. Well, first off, this is not a a, a restaurant problem. This is it's a, a universe. It, it's, <laughs> yeah. it, this is a this is a pro- hiring right people is a problem since the beginning of, of right. businesses in general. Mm-hmm. That's your most expensive venture. It's your most important part of your business mm-hmm. is hiring the the right people. And, and this one right now, where every industry is struggling, every vertical is struggling mm-hmm. getting that right person. Um, so everybody needs help with that. Yeah, and I think really, if you think about who we're talking to, mm-hmm. right? It's it's a younger dem- demographic. It's Absolutely. millennials and the demographic even beh- coming up behind mm-hmm. them. And if you look at the research, and you just ask them anecdotally sure. what they want, they want companies with purpose. Mm-hmm. They want companies with mission. They want to see that in action. They want to say, you know what? Let's close the restaurant on Friday, mm-hmm. Tuesday, whatever. We're going to go do a day of volunteering. Right. You know, we're going to we're going to take our food waste and turn it into food for the homeless. They want to see that kind of concrete of action. And the number two thing is they want runway. They want that freedom, but also for someone to show them this is what the career ladder looks like. And I think as an industry for restaurants in particular, it's a phenomenal place to have a career. Mm. Obviously, a little biased here. Yeah. Um, and I've done it all, right? And I've gone from the hairnet and the clogs, and here I am running an investment firm now. Right. And I, you know, not to say I didn't have a running head start as an attorney, obviously, but that just goes to show you there is so much room to have phenomenal careers in the industry. And I think we need to, as a entire channel, like, and this is true across several channels, I think, or industries, is we need to do a better job of showing people that. Like, hey, right. look, look at how awesome we are. I feel like Chick-fil-A is like yes. that like, okay, so they're not hiring future competition. They're hiring future partners. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's the mindset that I took and when I started my business is I want to hire future partners, not you know, I think JC Penney said it. I won't I'm not gonna hire anybody that doesn't have the aptitude to become a partner. Yeah. Uh so um uh a lot of times you you start a business, you want to kind of keep your, like you said, your secret sauce and not let your employees know because you're going to hire competition. But if you're going, hey, this is the pathway to owning your own company within yeah. our company, like they do it best. I saw a thing on uh, on LinkedIn or Facebook that said Chick-fil-A has the longest waiting lines. Well, they do. And here's the reason, because they got 45 people in the drive-thru. If there was 45 people in the McDonald's drive-thru at any one of them, yeah. you'd be there a week. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there's also, <laughs> there are multiple touches in a Chick-fil-A drive-thru. Mm-hmm. There is an extremely high industry best-in-class level of customer service. They're happy. They're doing everything right. You know what? You don't really often hear people complaining about being in mm. line at Chick-fil-A. No. Even when the line is long, it still moves faster than most. Not most, all. I don't see <laughs> I don't see any of them that do better than that because they but they were already set up. Yeah. Right? So they didn't have to change anything. They just had to put a little, you know, steroids on what they were already doing. Yeah. And they had a best in class rollout of their online ordering app. Mm-hmm. They rolled out delivery during the pandemic, which mm-hmm. was insourced at first and now I think is in partnership with DoorDash mm-hmm. also. But, um, you know, look, they are uh, hands down best in class. We are incredibly fortunate to have them in our local market here in Atlanta mm-hmm. as a shining example. And Atlanta is, in fact, the largest concentration of restaurant franchisors in the country. Is it? It is. And so there is an enormous amount of industry leadership and expertise in this market. 
And for us as a company, although we work coast to coast, mm-hmm. it's a no-brainer for me to be here in Atlanta, even though I can hop on a plane and get to any of our clients or sure. drive if I need to. But, uh, um, you know, I love being here for that because mm-hmm. I love those kinds of examples. Sure. And they're not even the only one, but they're a mm-hmm. great example for sure. What is um, – when we're, when we're talking about, uh, you know, franchises, what, what's – like when I was doing a lot of door-to-door, I got to know a lot of franchises and how they work and mm-hmm. everything. I felt like all franchises were started in te- Texas, like Houston or Dallas. Why, really? why is that? I think it's a perception, just yeah. like everyone immediately conjures McDonald's when you think of franchising. Mm-hmm. As a country, we sort of developed the concept of it legally mm-hmm. and um, still have some of the best in the world laws to protect consumers mm-hmm. um, and franchisors, actually, um, not only on a state by state basis, but at a federal level as mm-hmm. well. Um, you know, it's not a mistake. America in, at its core is very entrepreneurial. Sure. Um, we're very bootstraps, mm-hmm. right? And we love an underdog story. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there is a high likelihood that there are certain states that maybe support that more than others. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to throw that out there. Sure. Um, but, you know, I, I also think that there's a lot of funding in Texas. So if there, if that actually is true, those would I don't be my, know. Those it would could be, be my a perception. Those could would be, be my two guesses. But yeah. then again, like look at Atlanta. Would you have said Atlanta would be a high concentration of restaurant franchisors? No, not Why? really. Why? Right, exactly. But I'm not in the and yet, and yet here we are. <laughs> right. right. So um, I think that those things just sort of evolve over time. To tell you the truth, right? I mean, it's just it's it's a it's a weird kind of magnetic effect too. Right. Um, sure. And so the, there becomes um, more available capital around those types of enterprises. There becomes a lot more energy just in its its own little microclimate, if you will, of funding sure. and ideas. And it, it becomes a little bit of an incubator, if you Let's will. Let's talk about the like licensing their their own product because you you really just hit on that mm-hmm. you know a little bit. But do do they license their T-shirts? Do they license their and, yeah. and they, they sell their T-shirts, sell their mustard, sell their ketchup, sell their barbecue sauce? And how do you do that? Yeah. So one of the things we focus on as a channel for revenue for our clients is product development. So Mm -hmm. that's the concept of, okay, what is the bottleneck in the kitchen? What's that high touch, high cost, super popular, high volume item that you cannot keep in stock? Like Mm -hmm. to use Chick-fil-A as your example, like what's your Chick-fil-A sauce? What's your Mm -hmm. Polynesian sauce? Like what is it? Right. And usually there's one or two things and Mass producing it in bulk does a lot of things for our restaurant clients. One is it creates lower cost, right, per unit in Mm -hmm. use in the restaurant. So we manufacture in bulk and we set aside some part of it for mass consumption within the restaurant itself and the recipes, et cetera. Sure. Then we can take some of it and bottle it and market it really for sale as retail within the restaurant for customers to take home with them Mm -hmm. and really take that brand loyalty and have that experience in their home. Um, And just, you know, from a marketing perspective, they're opening the fridge, for example, and seeing that brand every single day. It's priceless uh, marketing and advertising. And then similarly, when you push that product out into the market, marketplace, whether you go concentric or kind of hyper local around the restaurant, you're increasing the brand awareness for the restaurant by putting it in retail, mm-hmm. right in the you know, periphery of the restaurant, you know, within four to 10 miles. And then even more so when you're able to push it out more, you know, broader, more broadly, right. like coast to coast. So that's one of the ways that we develop product. Another avenue is licensing, as you mentioned. Sure. 
So when you have enough equity in the brand itself, um, you have a brand loyal following, you can start leveraging it onto merch like T-shirts, mm-hmm. hats, stickers, things mm-hmm. like that, which go out into the marketplace. As also marketing. Marketing yeah. that you don't pay for, <laughs> right. right? It's brilliant. And so- Well, they're paying for marketing because exactly. they're purchasing it. Yeah. Exactly. So it's dollars in your pocket, pocket and marketing out in the field. Mm-hmm. There's also licensing onto existing product or co-branding with other product. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can leverage that brand equity onto other consumer experiences. Those deals usually range anywhere. It depends on the the level of panache of the brand, really, the level of equity that there is and the level of demand for it in the marketplace. But those deals are usually anywhere between 3 and 7% royalty rate, depending mm-hmm. on um, how popular the brand sure. is, really. So, at, at, Per location, as a consultant, what do you like to see that volume kick when you're doing selling the t-shirts selling the mustard selling the the barbecue sauce and the secret sauce what what, what do you think is yeah. good yeah so a good target for us is usually around five percent to start mm. right so we're looking at the entire ecosystem of mm. the various revenue streams that are coming into the business and i personally like to drive on and when we're budgeting these things for about a 5% leap in sales. That's awesome because you're already doing that. Right. You're and, doing this And I like to think about it as marketing that more than pays for itself. Yep. It's also operationally more efficient. And right. I cannot stress that enough because a lot of the times when we manufacture these mm-hmm. products, the product itself is a high touch, high cost because it requires an owner to make it because they're the only ones that know the recipe. Well, what's, the or, po- what's that point? What's the point to do co-packing to do it in their own kitchen? So co-packing is a nice in-between mm-hmm. to uh, sort of like br- a, a stop gap, if you will, before you go Because there's also a private. volume. Right. So in the beginning, co-packing is a nice solution. And just for those who don't know what that is, mm-hmm. you essentially pay someone else to make it. And, and package it for you. Or you have one party manufacture the sauce, for example, and another one bottles it and labels it and distributes it for you. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of outsourcing all of those functions to two or three key partners. Private manufacturing is you literally take over that whole function, right? And, and in the end, that is often when you get to a certain size of restaurant group, mm-hmm. that is often the way to do it. But you have to be fairly large to effectively create a manufacturing division within right. the company. And that's not usually something that's a, the right time for our clients because we're looking at growth that's between zero and 20 units. Mm-hmm. It's usually something that comes a little bit later down the road when you have nationwide sales, hundreds of units, mm-hmm. and the volume really creates some efficiencies there. Of course. Yeah. Where you insource the manufacturing and distribution. How hard is it to get on shelves? Right now, <laughs> it's getting better. Is but it? during the pandemic, they didn't really do any change out of what was on. They were having enough issues with supply chain. They did know what's called a reset on the shelf. Mm-hmm. So if you were a new product, it was almost impossible to get in during the pandemic. Because that's what I've heard is that's kind of a headache is the grocery is. stores and all that is is getting in there, getting a good place where you can yeah. sell it, end caps are ridiculous. There are fees for all of those things. Yeah. <laughs> okay, And what I will say is there is a price to admission. Mm-hmm. Let's just of put course, it that yeah. way. Um, it is not you always, pay to play, right? it is not always <laughs> for that reason, the best move for where our clients should sell their products. Mm-hmm. And there are many other options that are available before you go to what we would call like a big box grocery store or a big box retailer. Mm-hmm. Um, and because some of these brands are hyper local 
in their growth cycle. And because that is a consumer trend right now, those Mm -hmm. two things actually work together to give plenty of avenues to our clients to have really good retail partnerships where they're still seeing that revenue. It's just not quite as high a volume, but they're able to sell the product at a premium because it is hyper local or organic or what have you. I always thought it would be a good idea for just a one-off shop to bottle their stuff and sell it at the local gas stations. <laughs> I mean, really? Because yeah. then it, those those gas stations will put it on because they'll make a little bit of money mm-hmm. off of it, but then it's free marketing for you. So, again. And it's right around the corner. Yeah, but that just becomes a, a, a throughput issue because mm-hmm. you're, you're, gas stations do a lot of volume, right? Sure. So the restock is happening like almost every night, especially on the beverages and that kind of thing. So it just, you have to kind of know sure. and be smart about your throughputs, right? So right. like if you don't want to be the bottleneck and oversell it so that you don't have enough capacity and you need to make it something that's a smart bolt on to the business, it's mm-hmm. not going to strain the business itself, right? Sure. So it's it's all in the strategy I and it you. also depends very enormously on what the product is, right? If we're talking about beef jerky, I feel you on that. But if we're talking about barbecue sauce, that makes no sense in a gas station, right? You just have to have a good plan, really. Well, um, so... One of our first encounters, we did a we did a podcast, and you were one of the first podcasts we did on Burn the Ship. So thank you. You're um, and um, but I we had we had talked about one of my friends that owns a company that we talked about getting franchised, mm-hmm. and I was super surprised after we had that conversation. You were like, you shouldn't franchise. <laughs> so so which is look that is yeah. that goes that says a lot. Yeah. About about somebody that does franchising to say yes. you don't franchise this. So what is that? What when you when you make that uh, that that opinion and you tell somebody, hey, this is what what's franchisable and what's yeah. not? Okay, so first and foremost, this is why we're friends. We call it like we see it, right? Yeah. We're both like that. Um, but one of the reasons I have no hesitation in making those recommendations to clients is we have multiple ra- ways that we can grow mm-hmm. our clients, including our restaurant clients, and so. Franchising is at its core a long-term business partnership, Mm. and they they usually last 20 years or more. And there is an infrastructure and a cost to that infrastructure that goes behind supporting a franchise system, which lots of folks don't talk about. But when you're north of 20 units, that's like $2 million a year in overhead, Mm. right? Just in bodies, never mind the IT and all the other stuff. I I mean, big numbers, right? So... It's easy to get attracted to this idea of, especially if you don't have the capital or the ability to do it yourself and you want the growth to think you can outsource your entire franchising to Mm -hmm. a turnkey packaged solution. There are a number of issues with that approach. One is you're giving up 95% of the sales. Right. Sure. Because in theory, you're letting someone else operating the business for five to seven percent of royalty Two, obviously, we talked about the cost and no one ever really factors that in. And the costs do escalate over time as you grow. <laughs> so that does erode a little bit of the profit margin. Three, it is very hard to franchise anything if you've only done it once. Mm. Every time we open a new restaurant on brand it gets exponentially better than the first one. Sure. The third one is even more so better than the first. And when you get to unit five, you go back to unit one and you redo it to get to that new standard. So my personal belief is it does take a couple tries to get it right to Mm -hmm. really understand 
the client base, the, you know, the customers, the location, you know, all the kind of tweaks in a kitchen that you need to get it right before you hand that over as a tried and tested method to mm-hmm. a franchisee. And I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. There's a lot of really fantastic franchise lawyers out there, obviously biased because I was one, (laughs) but who can serve clients and answer these kinds of questions Mm -hmm. and give them fair estimates on what a franchise disclosure document and a custom franchise agreement would cost for them. When I get a little concerned is when packaged companies say they're a turnkey solution and take a point or two off royalty stream indefinitely. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is, It may not matter to you now or feel like it's a lot of money now, but in the future, when you value your company, and let's just say you have 10 or 20 units, that royalty (laughs) is valued much higher than anything else your company is Mm. doing, including the sales in your own restaurant. The reason for that is it's treated in a discounted cash flow model as an annuity. It's right. a sure thing to an investor. So someone who's valuing the company is going to look at that and put a much higher multiple on that royalty stream. So if there's one piece of advice I could give people who are considering franchising is really understand your options. Franchising yeah. is not the only way that you can grow your business. Mm-hmm. Um, two, talk to a number of different franchise solutions, not just packages, but consultants and attorneys who exclusively do franchising. And three, and most importantly, this is the golden rule, never encumber your royalty stream. Mm. Keep those royalties for yourself because that is going to pay off in the end when it's valued. Even if you never sell it, it's still valuable, It's right? still valuable. It's, it's well, that is, <laughs> it affects the valuation of the company as a whole, which could matter if you're leveraging the company with debt. It could matter for a lot of things, right? Yep. A series B of funding, whatever. So it matters. The first time I spoke with you, and I never heard of this before, and um, uh, is the law's on franchising are intense. Mm-hmm. So you can't, if I'm a franchise and you explain this to me, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to say it like I'm three, but <laughs> if I own a company, I'm a franchisor and I sell a franchise, I can't sign a paper for a franchise that day. There's a cool off period. Yes. Talk about that law and why, why was that ever established? Yeah. All that. Um, so that is part of the franchise disclosure process. Mm-hmm. There there are loopholes for that. Like if you're a sophisticated investor, um, that cooling off period is not necessary. But it's to it's a federal regulation that's designed to create space for a franchisee or a prospective franchisee, I should say, f- to clearly evaluate the offer, to not feel the pressure of a sales tactic, mm. to be able to read through that, you know, 22 item franchise disclosure document to flip to the appendix where all of the numbers and names and email mm-hmm. addresses of current and past and closed franchisees sure. are ah. so that you can go through there and make those kinds of inquiries on your own. And it's a 14-day waiting and it has, period. You ha- so I have to disclose my failures to yes. a prospective client. Yes. Which, oh, which awesome. is an yeah. interesting point. And I mm-hmm. was talking to a fellow franchise attorney just yesterday. And one of the things that we were lamenting is if you are selling somebody a franchise package, right, like you're a turnkey solution, Mm -hmm. you don't actually have to disclose your failures to a prospective client, right, Mm -hmm. the future franchisor you're selling this person a franchise package to. 
But when you become a franchisor, you have to disclose all of your failures and it's going back years. So mm. it's it is something that is a good hallmark of a franchise system, whether or not there are failures within the system. It's something you should always check for. You should also independently audit some current franchisees to get their unbiased opinion if they'll talk to you. Um, but I think that's something to think about, right? Sure. Like, where are the success stories, right? Well, I think, um, first off, um, you get your own lawyer mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're on your yeah. team and yeah. let them read those documents as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, there's a lot that you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I couldn't read those documents and go, right, that's a good... And those lawyers are going to ask questions that you never knew how to to ask, well, right? And more importantly, really good attorneys who represent, without doing litigation, can represent both clients who are franchisors and franchisees. Mm-hmm. They'll tell you what market is. So they'll be able to spot a provision that's way out in left field and say, I don't know about this one. Right. You need to ask a question about this. And really give you an idea, let's just say context, Mm -hmm. for what should be in that franchise agreement. Now, listen, as a person who wrote and enforced franchise agreements for years, I will tell you, some franchisors just refuse to negotiate on what's in the black and white. Mm. There's a lot of reasons for that. You kind of want there to be some homogenous kind of rules across all of your yep. franchisees that you know exist with respect to the franchise agreement. Oh, just the black and white. Yeah. Do, do not change. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right? Um, things like termination rights, you know, the ability to open a satellite unit, you need permission for like, just like some basic stuff, mm-hmm. right? But there. that said, a really good attorney doesn't need to mark up the whole agreement for you. They can read it and say, hey, look, here are my four areas of concern. Do you want me to call them? Do you want to call them and at least educate you? And Mm. I'm really big on that. At the end of the day, how an entrepreneur chooses to grow their business is up to them. Sure. But I tell every single person that I talk to on the phone as a prospect, my job is to show you your options. Right. If you choose us and we end up working together, great. But at a minimum, I guarantee you, you're going to walk away smarter than we started this call because I'm going to lay it out for you. No, we do everything above the table, super transparent. We're very clear about our fees and the way we grow with our clients. And I think that that's out of respect for the concept of franchising and how hard it is to be an entrepreneur and in honor of that spirit that we sure. have in this country. I can't think of another way to do it. It's just the right way to do it. That's it. That's it. Well, full disclosure is always the right way to do it. Right. Um, then there's no surprises. At, at, you know, In the light, always. Th- there can always be surprises, but at least you know that that was there. Yeah. Are you guys going to um, you know, stay in that v- the restaurant vertical? Are you looking at other franchise uh, um, models besides the food industry? You know, that's a fantastic question. I think with respect to the first fund mm-hmm. that we're raising – and where it will be allocated, the answer is yes, it will be restaurant specific. Mm-hmm. As to the future and what it holds for our model, um, I, I'm not opposed to that. But I think right now we're really we're really adamant mm-hmm. about making some positive impact in the industry. And one of the ways that we do that is by funding and elevating and bringing new flavors to the table, right? Funding women, funding minority run businesses. 
and really having an impact in the industry that way. Cool. I feel honestly, until I feel like that box has thoroughly been checked for me, mm-hmm. I think that we'll probably stay in our lane. But that said, I think that a lot of our educational content and the things that we're doing to help explain franchising, explain entrepreneurial growth Mm -hmm. in ways that it can be done, translate across many different industries. And that's something that I think is probably a more likely thing that we'll do is make our educational content more widely Mm -hmm. available beyond restaurants. How can we get you clients? Like what, what is, what is, if somebody had to take something and go, this is what I'm going to give Lauren is, is it local restaurant? How do, how do I bring somebody to you? Yeah. So we work coast to coast. We are looking for casual restaurant brands. Again, anything mm-hmm. from like a drive through up to a white tablecloth. Um, we take stuff that's a little bit of field too. We work with products and turn them into restaurants. And we also work with um, fine dining and turn it into casual. So just because it's in one of those outlying spaces does not mean that we can't figure out a way to work with it. And indeed, we have a couple clients who are like that. And right. I really love those projects because it just really turns the team's creativity on and gets us really thinking about what the strategic growth plan is going to sure. look like. Um, so anywhere between, you know, really even emerging brands, not even having a unit open. So we have a special program for folks that are funded but not open yet so that we can help them make the right decisions up front and then come back after they've been open for a year mm-hmm. and really come back as a secondary investor. So um, really, they don't even have to have a unit open, but anything under 10 units is usually where we where we live. Um, we love stuff that's independently owned and operated, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, really, if it has a unique flavor profile, um, a unique point of view, something kind of interesting to bring to the marketplace, mm-hmm. but that's not really even a requirement. We just really want to work with folks who have that entrepreneurial spirit, really want to grow their business and are excited about being a part of that with a partner who can help fund their development and manage their development for them. How can I get a hold of you? What's your website? What's your email? What's your yeah. personal cell phone number? <laughs> so <laughs> what's we, your home address? <laughs> Social security number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are at fullcourse.com. On fullcourse.com, you can actually book a call directly with me if you're interested. There's also a ton of resources on there if you're interested just in the different aspects of how we grow restaurants, whether it's restaurant optimization, um, our product development, our franchising services, et cetera. Um, You can reach us on all forms of social media at fullcourseofficial, and you can reach me at lauren at fullcourse.com. Awesome. Thank you for coming in. This was awesome. We've just scratched the service with her. Get a meeting. She can she can blow your mind. She's been doing it forever. Yes, I so, have. Thank, thank you so much for having me absolutely. back. Absolutely. Everybody be kind to each other out there.